Okay, good morning, everybody. Yeah, and uh, I want to commend all of you for showing up at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, I'm uh, Chuck Alsop with uh, the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, this little organization uh, uh, that's uh, got my logo behind me, but uh, we're really, uh, really uh, happy to be here uh, co-sponsoring and co-hosting this, this uh conference with the University of Texas and to Will and Bobby, thanks for all of the, uh, the uh, camaraderie and friendship and professionalism as we got ourselves ready for this thing. It's, uh, it's been a real uh, pleasure to work with you guys, thanks. So uh, I'm uh, a bit humbled uh, to be up uh, here on this stage uh, with this uh, cast of characters. The, uh, you know, I guess uh, when I started thinking about it, I was gonna call you know, the folks on this stage legends uh, in our business. But I think that may be a little bit of an exaggeration. The, uh, you know, David and Nick, you know, you, we can't call you legends uh, until you retire. You know, you, you, you've got a few more things to do for us. Uh, but the, um, uh, I won't belabor uh, introductions. You've got the bios in front of you. Uh, but I do wanna uh, just mention a couple of things. Um, and uh, kind of going in terms of seniority, but uh, Admiral Enman, a hero and an inspiration to all of us in the intelligence community. Uh, I think about us that started in the 70s and the 80s uh, and you know, what, uh, what an inspiration he was to, to all of us. Director of NSA, Deputy Director of CIA, and after that, a true Texas entrepreneur. Uh, and. Uh, uh, we're, we're all honored to be with you here today, Admiral Inman. Uh, John McLaughlin, uh, an amazing leader and scholar, one of the most thoughtful individuals I've ever had uh, the pleasure to be associated with, an analyst, historian, and scholar at heart. He became deputy director and acting director of, of CIA. Uh, he continues to serve, teaching and mentoring students at uh, Johns Hopkins. <coughs> Uh, and serving on several boards, uh, and one that was mentioned yesterday uh, of, of special note, chairing the CIA Officers Memorial Foundation. So John, thanks for being here with us. Uh, Tom Fengar, uh, analyst par excellence. Uh, he got the thankless task uh, back in 2005 of uh, fixing analysis. Uh, in the aftermath of the 9-11 uh, report and uh, the uh, WMD Commission report. Uh, he came to government from academia uh, and rose to be Assistant Secretary of State at, at INR. First DD&I for analysis for returning to academia at Stanford uh, where he continues to mentor young analysts. Uh, Nick Rasmussen, the, uh, Kind of a late add to the panel. The, uh, yeah, he was going to be with us on the NCTC panel yesterday, uh, but, uh, but uh, if you want to talk about, uh, if we're talking about practitioners' perspectives today, you know, Nick just got put into the hot seat of practitioners uh, at, at NCTC. Um, a great uh, career uh, from State Department leading up to uh, deputy director at, uh, uh, at NCTC, and uh, now since. Uh, uh, Matt left you with a big memo. 
the 10 page that he talked about yesterday. The, uh, and now you get to, uh, to be the ultimate practitioner at NCTC. So thanks for being with us, Nick. And uh, David Shedd. Uh, I have to recuse myself uh, a bit on this one, uh, as David is a dear personal friend. And I don't want to embarrass him and Lisa here too much. Uh, but uh, suffice to say, uh, great operational credentials, without going into a lot of detail, uh, as a member of the clandestine service, uh, distinguished service in the White House, original plank holder along with Tom uh, in the ODNI, uh, helping to set it up, and now the acting director of DIA. Uh, a good example of jointness as we try and move this community forward. Um, I want to do something a little bit different now. Um, we're going to you know, part of the theme of the conference was, uh, are we smarter and safer? Um, I think we're going to posit up front here that we're smarter and safer. Uh, but I think um, what we do want to ask uh, ourselves up here and be thinking about as we go through this discussion, is that good enough? So. Our goal today is to discuss a path forward for the next decade or so, not to perfection, because that's unachievable, but to, to good enough or uh, something of that order uh, to protect our nation and help it prosper. So the first question that I'm going to ask all of the, uh, the panel members to address uh, is, the uh, three of the panelists up here were present at the creation of the ODNI. Um, I think uh, uh, Nick was, a, uh, was a probably an interested observer 10 years ago of what was going on. Uh, Admiral Inman was certainly uh, someone that uh, those that were trying to uh, craft this IRPTA thing. Uh, was, uh, was certainly consulted uh, and certainly a very interested observer uh, of what was going on. So I'm going to ask uh, each one of the panelists, and we're going to start with David down here, how would you assess these first 10 years? And we don't want to beat some of the dead horses that we've already beat, as, uh, as General Clapper talked about, but how would you assess those first 10 years uh, of intelligence reform and really focus a little bit on what, what are some of those things that, uh, that maybe aren't working as well as they should? Uh, and, uh, and things that we might uh, want to focus on in terms of improving uh, our intelligence community? And what do you think the intelligence community should look like 10 years from now? David? Well, thank you, Chuck. Uh, I was reflecting a lot on the comments that you, Steve, made during the lunchtime presentation along with the afternoon panels. And it brings me back to thinking uh, a thought that I had about maybe six to nine months ago and where I've moderated a bit of my narrative on intelligence reform away from integration, don't fall off your seat, I'll come back to that, to relevancy. And the whole question of the intelligence community, where it is today and where it needs to go in the context of relevancy. And Steve's comments yesterday reminded me of everything from the engagement in the Oval Office 
a much more predominant role that I play at the Defense Intelligence Agency with the warfighter and combatant commands. And it comes down to really thinking about integration as a critical means vice and ends. Really a critical difference. Because we can be very integrated, and I've often said we could take the entire intelligence community of 110,000, get Redskin Stadium, fill it up, and have one gigantic bullpen, and call it integrated. It would not necessarily make you any more relevant. So the real challenge for us in creating decision advantage to the decision maker with the appropriate weight in the counterintelligence to the information that we provide, that is what we know and as importantly what we don't know, is about relevancy. So I really want to leave that as an imprint in terms of how we think of the intelligence community against the backdrop of crises that either continue de jour and not returning to their status quo ante or new crises as they <laughs> Uh, emerge as well as just world state affairs by way how intelligence informs that. So that's just by way of a backdrop. Where I think the intelligence community needs to go, uh, because I have thought about the last uh, 36 hours and what we've talked about with somewhat of a rosier picture than perhaps is, is as uh, deserving on, on the uh, intelligence reform and talk a few things about a few things where I think we absolutely need to go uh, in, the, in the coming years and sooner if at all possible. One, and Nick can certainly elaborate on this in the uh, National Counterterrorism Center context, but it's, I don't think we still have information sharing where it needs to be. We have uh, still divides within the IC elements who resist putting their information and I believe resist doing so uh, with uh, concerns about insider threat that, uh, but it's been a moving bar as to what requires to meet, what is required to meet the, uh, shall we say, by, by uh, one particular agency that I'm very closely associated with in terms of my own background absolutely resisting to put significant amount of data into the jointness by way of its access. I think there's still a shortfall, a fairly dramatic one, of law enforcement information, and particularly the elements inside the, uh, the Homeland Security area that are not knitted up in terms of what that feed is that has relevancy to what the intelligence community needs and vice versa what the intelligence community can provide into the law enforcement area. And I think a lot more work really does uh, need to, to, to be done there. There is an over-application of originator control. This is a marking, not a classification, that is placed on information that the so-called owner of that information says thou shalt not use until you come back and check with me. There is a place for ORCON as the, as the acronym is used for originator control, but it is still way overused. I think there is still an overuse of no foreign. This is information where there is already by the author of that information a stamping that says thou shalt not share with a foreign partner. 
and I think a lot more work has to be done there. I think DOD has an arcane process in the national disclosure process that hasn't significantly changed in many years, the NDP process that really needs to be revamped. And Mike Vickers and uh, until recently Michelle Flournoy and I talked a lot about the need to revamp the, uh, the non-disclosure issues as new partners show up whether in the, in the battlefield, in the diplomatic arena, and so forth, on the whole sharing side. So uh, I cannot overemphasize the need to do uh, significantly more on information sharing and counter, frankly, the pushback from certain agencies and elements therein to, uh, to sharing. Acquisition. Um, I was talking to uh, Representative Thornberry last night, and I don't think I'm revealing any secret here. I think it's absolutely broken. But, uh, and I would uh, invite Admiral Inman, if he wishes to talk about it, in his era, perhaps it was a five to six year cycle in an acquisition uh, uh, turn. Today it's 12 to 15 years. I'll tell you, the adversaries are well ahead of us then in terms of when that actually comes off the production line on acquisition. And uh, I, I think the layers and layers of bureaucracy that are involved in that uh, need to be significantly revamped. And there is this, uh, it's again arcane, but there's milestone decision authority on large acquisition programs and so forth that are very cumbersome. The drive to have to fund to independent cost estimates. These are in oftentimes the billions of dollars with a B in front of them. That's why it's very significant in terms of the impact on it. And I think a community five to 10 years from now really has to come to terms with major acquisition that has been done in, uh, I would even argue sometimes in 19th century as opposed to even 20th century. I would take that, uh, but it's certainly not 21st century rules of engagement for that. And lastly, I think there is a, a uh, significant need, and I, and I believe it's for like this and, uh, and other events that INSA and, and AFCEA and other groups are putting on, but in the public-private sector relationship, far more of a synergy that's needed. It's needed in the area of innovation. It's needed in critical thinking. We have alluded to, if not actually talked explicitly, about uh, the opportunities to draw from academia in the knowledge base. I mean, I was uh, just taken by the panel where uh, Mary and others that John also sat on, just thinking about a different perspective on the war on terror and the makeup of how our adversaries think. We don't own that. We don't own that corner of the market inside government. God forbid if that's what we limit it to. And so I see an intelligence community freed up with, I'm sure, ample assistance from our lawyers of a much stronger relationship of the private public sector in, in a host of areas. I've, I've built an innovation team inside uh, a DIA that has a a very close working relationship with the S&T side at CIA, uh, with DARPA, IARPA, these are acronyms in the areas of, of innovations, but it's not nearly enough. That innovation is going to come from 
the garages and basements all across America, ideas of where they need to know what our requirements are and, and then act on them and, and take a high risk in, in then uh, associating themselves with government in hopes of, of having that implementation. We need to make our requirements known in a much more fluid uh, manner. And, and so Chuck, I would, I would just simply close with, I see an intelligence community in five to 10 years from now that is far more dynamic, far more agile, far more lashed up with the American people in the social contract of intelligence and what uh, the American people should uh, expect in, in an area of transparency where we can in fact talk about our business, not the sources and or the methods associated perhaps of what we do, but certainly the, the big outline of what we're doing and why we're doing it needs to be part of that conversation through our members of Congress and Senate, through our, uh, through our direct engagements with, with the American public, and then with missionaries such as yourselves going out and talking about it and, and, and recognizing the, the criticality of the role of intelligence in the protection of our great nation and our friends and allies. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Chuck, and I apologize in advance if I end up uh, trot it, treading over any ground that, that Matt and the, the, the panelists yesterday did in talking about some of the NCTC-specific events because I missed that discussion, but I can certainly try to frame some of the NCTC-specific challenges in the, within, the, um, within the four corners of what Chuck asked us to do, and, and I'll do that by highlighting just three specific challenges I think we face. Um, as we look towards where we want to be as an intelligence community and where we want to be specifically at NCTC uh, several years down the road. And one picks up very much directly on, on David's point on information sharing. Um, in the continuum of good news, bad news, uh, I might lean a little further up the good news continuum than, than David does in this regard. Um, but that's, I think, because we put a lot of effort into it. And sometimes effort equates to, um, to credit. Uh, I think in the CT mission space as a subset of the overall intelligence community enterprise, the, the understanding of the requirement to lean forward in, in terms of inter information sharing across agency and department lines, I think is pretty well developed and pretty non-controversial. Where we fall down, where we struggle, where we encounter challenges, where we're still beset by challenges, it's much more the mechanics of implementing, getting people to um, work creatively within their own rule sets um, to allow that information uh, sharing. It's, again, I don't know if I'm uh, splitting hairs here, but it's rarely a matter of bad faith or not understanding the importance of the enterprise. Now, that doesn't make it easy because, you know, David referred to lawyers, and, and all of our organizations can drum up teams of lawyers who can read our own authorities in narrow ways or in expansive ways. And you can imagine the negotiations that go on about the mechanics of data sharing turn very decisively on how those discussions go. Um, and what seems like it should take weeks can take months or even years to try to um, accomplish, even after leaders of organizations agree that there's an imperative to share across organizations. So um, I'll say that um, if only to paint a little bit of a, a slightly more half, glass half full picture than David, because I think um, 
I agree, 10 years from now, if this group is meeting or our successors are meeting, I hope we have a much better story to tell, not only um, about information sharing writ large, but about the architecture we've built from an IT perspective to actually accomplish that. And I know Director Clapper talked about some of that in his remarks the other evening. Um, second area of challenge I'll mention there is related directly to information sharing, and that's the challenge of data management and analysis. As we accumulate and acquire more and more um, access to more and more data, the, the, the burden of responsibility shifts onto organizations like NCTC to make sure that it's used effectively, efficiently, uh, within a framework of rule of law and with, uh, with full respect and regard for, for privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties, all of which we aspire to do without missing anything. Um, and all of you who are close observers of, of counterterrorism in the intelligence community saw what the community went through in the wake of the 1225 uh, near-miss uh, attack on the United States uh, several years ago. And that was a, a critical moment for NCTC as an organization as we tried to figure out, okay, what does it mean to have this data if, if you're not able to see it piece it together and turn it into something that can be operationalized in, in terms of uh, disruption of, of terrorist activity. So the period since 1225, and this is something that started under Mike Leiter, continued under Matt, and will continue under uh, future leaders of NCTC, will be to put ourselves in a position we, where we are not in that horrifying position of owning something that we didn't understand or, or exploit. Uh, and that's the, the, I think, the, the feeling in the pit of our stomach that, that kind of keeps NCTC uh, senior leadership teams um, awake at night uh, as we think about these issues. We haven't simply admired and observed that problem. We've tried to devote energy, time, and resources to it. Um, one of Matt's parting shots to NCTC was to create an office of data science, data strategy and innovation. We found we really, there was nobody on our books whose job it was to literally understand data, how data is manipulated, how data is exploited, how data is used in the private sector, how data is used in the public sector, and to apply that to our mission set. We had pockets of, of expertise and excellence across NCTC of people who do this as an avocation or as a part of their educational experience or their prior professional experience, but nobody that uh, Matt, when he, during his tenure as director, could jab in the chest and say, help us define a vision for our exploitation of the intelligence community's vast data holdings. Nobody who could have the rows pinned on them in that way. And we've taken that step. Um, and again, this will in involve a fair amount of architecture work as well as we develop new um, software solutions that will allow us to correlate across different data sets. And all that sounds very inside baseball, but it's exactly, exactly where we are vulnerable at the moment when a, a, a known terrorist plot uh, comes upon us and we're looking for pieces of information that tell us something about beyond what the current intelligence tells us. So again, I think we've structured ourselves and organized ourselves to address these data, uh, data manipulation challenges, but we're not yet where we want to be in terms of having eliminated or closed that vulnerability. Um, and the last thing I'll say um, is about the, the area of, of transparency that David mentioned, and I'll, I'll be only very brief here. And this is got less to do with the how we do our business and, the more, and more to do with what we say about our conclusions and our analysis. Um, too many times, um, the director of NCTC is, is called up to, to, to brief closed sessions of the Congress uh, or of committees or, uh, or, or 
to, to carry out classified briefings, and that's as, a, as it should be in many cases are because our information is derived in sensitive ways. But what it means is there's a deficit in terms of how much we actually speak to the American people about what the threat picture is. What is the state of our understanding? What is the state of our ability to do something about it? But for a couple of opportunities a couple of times a year when Director Clapper and the other heads of the IC go in front of the, uh, the Congress, usually in January or February, uh, and, and provide that worldwide threat picture, but for that, we don't have many structured opportunities to do that. And so then, when something pops uh, uh, up into the headlines the way uh, events in Iraq did earlier this year, it comes out of context, out of context at least in terms of the public dialogue. I would argue it shouldn't have been out of context in terms of the inside uh, Washington community of people who were exposed to classified briefings and such, and I don't think it was. But the American people could utterly be forgiven for, for looking up and saying, wait, nobody talked to me about the threat we might be facing emanating out of Iraq and Syria. Um, because we just simply don't create for ourselves enough opportunities to have that dialogue. Uh, again, not to, to spend much, too much time uh, shouting out to my, my former boss, but Matt looked for an opportunity just before leaving NCTC to, to speak more on the record at, at a Brookings forum, and, and we'll obviously look to, to do that kind of thing in the future. Transparency demands that we speak more forthrightly about what we see, how we, how we assess it, and what it may cost us in terms of our, our, our blood and treasure in order to keep our people safe in the light of that threat picture. So again, that's something where we, we're doing it more than we used to, but we're still not doing it to, to a level I would argue is sufficient. I'll stop there. John? Well, first, uh, uh, Chuck's been very complimentary of all of us. Let me just say uh, in return that Chuck and Joe and Steve, Mike, uh, what they do at INSA is uh, extraordinary in terms of the relationship between the public sector and private sector, and we all owe them a vote of thanks. Terrific. Um, DNI now and 10 years hence. Now. Well, in full disclosure, I testified publicly against the whole DNI concept. Uh, and, and let's be clear about it, uh, privately and publicly. And three people, myself, Mike Hayden, uh, uh, Jim Clapper, the three of us, we, we were at that time, I was acting at CIA, and they were heads of other agencies, and NSA and NGA. The three of us uh, recommended that if a DNI would be created, that that individual should have our three agencies totally subordinate to that person. And our thought was, uh, if you're going to do this, go big. Well, you've heard and you know the congressional debate that took place, and it, it didn't turn out that way. And so I think we began that era, most of us, worried and skeptical about whether it would work out. I think it has worked out. I've come around. And uh, I'll tell you why. Each of the DNIs that I've observed has contributed something to create what is now uh, uh, a good thing, a very good thing. Uh, Negroponte basically uh, calmed down the community at a turbulent time and gave shape to the office. Uh, Mike McConnell uh, uh, did two wonderful things, FISA modernization and uh, updating Executive Order 12333. Uh, Denny Blair placed a lot of emphasis on community and on 
relating the military to this operation. And I think Jim Clapper's, the secret uh, sauce for Jim Clapper's time is that he's figured out um, the way to be successful here is to do the things and emphasize the things that only I can do. You know, he doesn't try to tinker with what's going on inside agencies. He's built personal relationships. And as he explained, he can do the budget. He can do IT. He can do acquisition. No one else can do that. And that's the secret sauce that I think has made Jim so uh, effective and, and well-regarded. So uh, all that said, uh, what would I change now about the IT, or the, uh, uh, the DNI? Uh, let me mention three things. First, uh, information technology. David referred to it. Everyone refers to it. It's a rather prosaic subject. Uh, if I talked long about it, eyes would begin to glaze over. But uh, Denny Blair asked me to do a study in uh, 2010 of the Christmas bomber case as an outsider. Come in, put cold eyes on it, look at this, what happened, what are the lessons learned. Uh, still classified, this report. Uh, we had four recommendations. One of the few reports that isn't transparent. Uh, we had four recommendations, uh, and one of them, the one that was most ardently felt on our side, and by the way, I had four people on my panel. Probably the most important person other than, well, I had an FBI senior officer, I had a civil liberties officer, a lawyer, and probably most important, I had a senior scientist from Google, okay? A fellow named Peter Weinberger, who's sort of a cult figure in that world. Yeah, he's shaking your head. They're t-shirts, Peter Weinberger. I'm wearing one, actually. <laughs> Uh, but uh, of about a 90-page report, 25 pages were devoted to information technology. Now, we had four reasons why this happened, and here, here's the bottom line on that part. If you lined up the 10 or 12 reports over time that talked about Abdul Muttalib, and you put them all out here, and this is why it was so immediately called an intelligence failure, you could see a thread running right through those reports that would lead you to a prior suspicion that this fellow was going to do something bad in the United States and he ought to be stopped. Problem was, those were buried in thousands and thousands and thousands of documents collected over months. Uh, the, the amount of information because of collection breakthroughs, success, because of success, the amount of information on the average analyst desk had gone from a couple hundred to multiple thousands in that period of time. So clearly the deficiency was the inability to manipulate that data to find the dots, if you will, that hateful expression. So IT. And so what Jim is doing in this eyesight program is probably the most difficult thing. I'll, le I'll leave out why it's hard. It seems like it should be easy, but it's hard. Uh, but obviously, at the same time, and looking ahead 10 years, probably the most transformative thing that you could do in this field. Second, acquisition. Uh, repeating what David said, why is acquisition important? Well, let me give you two examples from the distant past. One of the most successful collection platforms the United States has ever had is the U-2 aircraft. Do we have any U-2 pilots here? There's always one in the audience somewhere. No, we don't. <coughs> I see my avatar, John McLaughlin, though. I feel very secure today. Uh, uh, the U-2 
you too went from drawing board to flight in less than 18 months and then flew. Uh, they're just now trying to decommission it. I hope they don't because it's still an extraordinary collection platform. Um, could that happen today? Not so sure. Corona, the first satellite, information satellite, the photography satellite. And back then, this was revolutionary to say, can, can we take photographs from space? Students are not impressed with this today. <laughs> but, but this was a revolutionary idea. I mean, conventional camera, take a picture, film. Students say, what's film? Uh, uh, drop it in a bucket. Have the bucket come down through space with a parachute. Have a C-19 aircraft flying along slowly and catch it. And all those still on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean that they didn't catch. Yes, and, and Admiral Inman has just made my key point, which is it took about how many? 12, 13 yes. tries before this worked. Failures, let me say that, failures. They failed a dozen times, and they kept going, and people let them keep going. Now, actually, when one of those came down, it killed a, a, a bunch of cattle somewhere in the United States when it fell down. And that's known as the herd shot round the world. <laughs> Even Jennifer didn't know that one. And she knows, she knows everything. You're going to use that, aren't you? <laughs> so we've moved through the era when acquisition, and, and I'll come in a minute to why that's so important, but acquisition has to be fixed. It's too hard, it takes too long. The oversight is important, but cumbersome. Um, and that takes me to the third big thing that uh, the, the DNI area has to work on. And that's relations with uh, the Congress. Uh, Congressman is no longer here, but uh, that whole question of over... Oh, he is here. Oh, there he is. Thank you, Congressman. You don't have to change your comments. No. <laughs> No, I never do. <laughs> um, the whole issue of congressional relations is so critically important because it's our system. We can be critical of congressional relations and of oversight, but as I said yesterday in my question, this is the only thing that connects this community to the American people. You know, the military is connected. Uh, because uh, we all have someone in our family who's been in uniform. Uh, every little town in America has a recruiting station in the shopping center. We know about it. Intelligence, not so much. Very arcane, very, you know, I don't have to tell you. Um, so fixing that, and we can come back later to how you fix that, but that's the point. Next 10 years, what will it look like and what's important? Uh, my first point would be the DNI will still be around. This was an open question uh, in 2008 when President Obama was elected because it had had a trial run and so the, the new administration gave it another trial run to see, okay, the last guys created this thing, is this gonna work for us? And they kept it. And now eight, close to seven years later, uh, I think it's established. So it'll be around, it's first thing. Second thing, I think intelligence will be more important. Why do I say that? How could it be more important than today? Here's my view is that we have now entered a new era in international relations. When did this begin? 
You look at the role of intelligence, which is very young in our country, okay? Jennifer's writing a book now, which will show how old it is in other countries. Going back to the 16th century in England, when it was already a finely developed art. At the national level, we've been doing this for, since 1947. It's still very new to us. So, um, but, so a history of intelligence in our country. I won't go through the whole history, but let me just say, Cold War, bipolar competition. Cold War ends 17 years from 1991 to 2008. We kind of own the world. We can do whatever we want. Intelligence serves that. We are the standing, surviving superpower. 2008, we have the financial crisis. Things start to change. The American model begins to be collected, or, or, or criticized, questioned. Um, and uh, yes, we are still the most powerful country in the world. But other countries are rising. Uh, competition is greater. And I think we are slipping into, after an exceptional period of history, uh, a classic balance of power world. Henry Kissinger says this. It's not my idea. And that means that we are going to be in a more competitive environment. That means we will need intelligence more. And that means the, the, the issues that intelligence deals with will be more vital to the success of our country even than today. And there'll be different issues. You know, countries that are rising will continue to rise. Uh, I think China may go in, there are lots of problems in China, and they may go into some tailspin of some sort, but I, I think they'll continue to rise. India, uh, the other BRICs, and so forth. So intelligence will be more important. Um, second point I wanted to make on that is, uh, Technology is changing so rapidly that uh, intelligence will have to keep abreast of it over the next 10 years because even as David and others are trying to modernize the IT infrastructure, it will be changing under their hands, in their hands, uh, faster than we can adapt to it, I'm afraid. If you went back to 1983 or 1989, the number of microprocessors in these things we hold in our hands uh, was about 30,000. So there's now about a billion transistors in a microprocessor instead of 30,000. So that little thing there, the miniaturization of circuitry, and I ask engineers that I consult with, are we at the physical limits of miniaturization? The engineers in the, in the audience are shaking their head no. I'm told that it might be possible someday to get the computing power I hold in my hand in something the width little more than a human hair. So where is that going? Well, we can't even begin to imagine. Uh, the Internet of Things is just the first thing we can imagine, but we can't begin to imagine the impact of technology on intelligence. So the, the S&T component of intelligence is going to have to receive a lot of attention in the next 10 years. And the third and final thing I would say about the next 10 years is the critical importance for the DNI, meaning all of intelligence, of outreach to the expertise that exists outside of uh, classified data. Uh, 
this is something that I learned in my private life, my last eight years or so that I've been out, is the extraordinary level of expertise that exists outside of intelligence. Uh, I know people now at my school who work on China, who go to China frequently, or who are plugged in with the leadership there, who can get people on the phone, who can tell you, here's what's going on in China, here's what's, here's what's going on at the public opinion level. I'm not confident that the intelligence community is availing itself of this knowledge as thoroughly as it should. So that's the third thing I would recommend for the next 10 years. Chuck, thank you for your kind words at the outset, but let me disabuse in one case. <clears throat> I was incredibly fortunate to be Director of Naval Intelligence, and while I did that, I had a highly classified second job directing the National Underwater Reconnaissance Office that bought all of the miniaturized systems to go in nuclear submarines, anything for collecting under the surface of the seas. That's where this history major learned to manage high technology acquisition. And the good news for me is that all my mistakes are still classified. <laughs> <laughs> I went from there to be vice director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the director of National Security Agency, the, the uh, deputy director of Central Intelligence. A break, and then for President George H.W. Bush, vice chairman and then acting chairman of the President for Intelligence Advisory Board. No one asked for my advice on the creation of the DNI, either in the Congress or the executive branch. I was intensely interested from the side, but I developed, I didn't like people looking back over my shoulder when I was running those various jobs. So I didn't volunteer, and still I wait. If somebody asks me, they get more than they want probably in the way of opinion. Um, so I had, of course, on the record, I had proposed creating a DNI, but in a substantially different structure. Putting all that aside, and now looking out, again, what I perceive to be major challenges. There are a lot of things about Texas politics that I don't like, but one of the things I do like is sunset provision. And I think it would be very useful to look at all of the committees, organizations, structures that have been created since 04, simply 10 years test. What have they produced? Are they still necessary? Are they vital in this case? Because I believe trimming back from the top to uh, establish credibility for the other organizations that you really are uh, keeping a focus on being lean and mean and aggressive would be useful to do. On the acquisition front, uh, I shared with uh, Congressman last night my view. I was privileged when I ran NSA to have a procurement budget that ran from 500 million the first year to billion the last year for some very special uh, classified activities. I never went back to Congress for a cost overrun, ever. Wow. Because we sized for getting capability in the field. And when we recognized, we trimmed back our ambitions to get things that work in the field. And I think 
that very broadly needs to be readdressed. Because of overruns, tr trying to do too much, authorities got uh, restrained in the process. So I don't think the current directors have the authority that I had to make those trades. But putting the place that gives you high confidence, what you're going to buy, uh, you can afford, and it will add new capabilities, and you will upgrade it along the time as you need to do. Um, I think there's some ap applicability for the much larger procurement processes as well. Finally, rebuilding public confidence in the intelligence community. And transparency can mean a lot of things to different people. Um, I have some real qualms about what I hear from transparency because I still go back, and this has probably influenced uh, much of my collection years, uh, protection of sources and methods remains to me at the top of responsibilities. Because if you can't do that, you're not going to sustain the access uh, that the country needs and what you're going to produce. Um, there was a process that worked. The president called the publisher. Publishers still take president's call. Uh, team of the sent to brief the publisher, and he brought editors on exactly the damage they had done to sources and methods. And that evolved over a couple of years to include the publishers of the major newspapers and the major weeklies. And a process where they'd call it 7.30 in the evening to say, will it be damaging if we say the following? Never suppressing the stories, but suppressing the description of how we knew. Ben Bradley once told me that uh, they were happy, to, you know, patriotic, understood the need, but I should recognize that one of these days, Bob Woodward would write a book, and Ben wouldn't get to edit it. The book is called Veil, and if you read it, uh, you'll think we've been a, that Bob and I were talking every other week, uh, and uh, all the details. Because he loved to impress people. He was awfully good at getting details. And he loved to impress the other journalists with how the country was abiding it. But there was a period here, extended on for 18 months in the new administration, where there was a cooperation to not damage the intelligence community's ability to access information. This problem is going to get a lot worse over the next several months. If you don't know Citizen Four, uh, get ready to be immersed in it. Uh, Harvey Weinstein's going to make the great push to get it uh, the Oscar for Best Documentary. It's, it's Miss Poitras's portrayal of uh, Edward Snowden as one of the great heroes uh, in modern time. And so you're going to be swamped with that for the next six months, which makes, to me, even more critical. Frankly, I'm already thinking about the candidates in 2016 and trying to talk to them while they're still campaigning about a critical responsibility to help rebuild public trust 
in the intelligence community. And a critical part of that is the relationship with the congressional oversight committees. They are the public's representative. That's where transparency is critically important and not in the daily stories in this guy's view. So the focus on ensuring uh, if we can't make progress in the next two years, that whoever's going to be elected in 2016 will recognize one of their responsibilities is to deal with the publishers, deal with the editors, and make sure that there is fair portrayal of what goes on in this process, not the incredibly sloppy, misleading coverage that we've seen so much of in the last 18 months. Stop. Uh, express my pleasure at being included and my thanks to all of the sponsoring organizing groups. Uh, this 10-year look backward and look forward is a very important thing to do. Uh, like John, I testified publicly against creation of the ODNI uh, for a combination of what I would now characterize as low and somewhat higher uh, motivations. The low one was bureaucratic self-interest. Uh, the testimony was in response to a question in my confirmation hearing for Assistant Secretary of INR. Uh, and I had difficulty <coughs> envisioning at the time an arrangement that would benefit my bureau, my organization, my ability to perform the mission of support to diplomacy. That the existing arrangement with the DCI, there was almost nothing that the DCI could do for us. There were prohibitions and prescriptions and hurdles. It couldn't do much for me. Um, everything that he wanted me to do was zero-sum derogation, deterioration of ability to perform mission. And since he had no authority, I could basically ignore him, as did the heads of other agencies on this. We had no community. We had separate channels. And I was skeptical that we would come up something that would actually make it better rather than make it worse. Uh, I certainly have changed my view on that. Um, I did it, I changed my view during the, uh, the years that I was a, a part of the stand-up. The more higher, higher motivation, though, is relevant, I think, today. And that I will summarize as the politically expedient and wholly um, misleading characterization of the problems in our national security establishment as being problems in the intelligence community. That the 9-11 Commission report, as I uh, read it, understand it, the unhappiness about the quality of analysis that stemmed from unhappiness about the war in Iraq, uh, as well as from the bad estimate, point to a series of problems across the national security establishment. Legislative branch, executive branch, poor coordination, uh, competing goals within 
the executive branch, the role of the media, the role of the courts, that if you read the 9-11, there are a lot of things to be fixed. But the solution was we're gonna fix the entire enterprise by fixing the intelligence community. As a support function, it supports all of these other pieces. If we get that better, uh, it'll uh, cure the maladies, and I didn't think it would, and it hasn't. So as we look back at what has been accomplished and where we are today, that I think a great deal has been accomplished over the decade. Particularly one, one factors in the need to reform, transform, make major uh, adjustments in the intelligence community while fighting wars in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and dealing with what is sometimes called the war on terror. The challenge to stated in an overly simplistic way was we had to transform everything while breaking nothing. We could have no deterioration in the performance of the, econ of the uh, community and its support to terribly important national security objectives while dealing with everything from structure to personnel, uh, incentives, mode of duty, information systems. One of my uh, CIA friends at the time says, when I took the job, he says, it's easy. It's about the same as swapping out the wings on a 737 when it's full of passengers at 30,000 feet. That the not breaking anything is one of the accomplishments of the, of the decade. But a lot more uh, was accomplished in the way of promoting integration within the, the community. I think some of the problems that we face, I was saddened by David's litany because it sounded very similar to the list we had right at the beginning of the process. Um, some things are really hard. Others, the bureaucratic resistance is still there. Uh, the relationships with the White House at times, the Congress at times are an impediment. But the national security enterprise is more broken than it was a decade ago, in my view. I think we border on dysfunctional. The challenges that come to the intelligence community to set and act on priorities when we don't have uh, a bumper sticker-like concept of Cold War containment. Uh, we don't have a clear national strategy uh, we don't have clear ways to explain to the American public what we are most concerned about, the opportunities we wish to achieve. The combination of a broken national security establishment and the tremendous expansion, explosion of expectations for the intelligence community that has come about in the decades since the end of the Soviet Union, that uh, Ebola, it is in the national security basket, the intelligence community needing to adjust to protect every American everywhere in the world at all times from all dangers. It's a considerable escalation from protect our country from invasion by another nation. That the intelligence community's can-do attitude, supporting a very much larger list of customers on a very much longer list of topics that require very much deeper expertise uh, 
and require that the information be collected, processed, analyzed, and communicated in a very much shorter period of time, be much more operational than ever before. And the community has done an incredible job of satisficing, making it work, making it work despite uh, the problems. And we shouldn't lose sight of that as we uh, identify the things that do still need to be addressed. As I look forward, I see, unfortunately, very little prospect of the larger context changing very much. Uh, the piling on expectations for the intelligence community will continue. I think it's going to take us a couple more electoral cycles before we sort out some of the partisan-related problems in our system. Uh, and we get the kind of national consensus uh, and leadership to, to change uh, the way in which we make national security-related decisions. And that is my starting point for highlighting a couple of things that haven't worked as well as they had and or must be addressed. One is outreach. Uh, John made the point of the expertise outside of the intelligence community on many subjects. The topics we work on now are too complicated, too uh, consequential to leave to amateur hour. We need deep expertise, deeper than we have in the intelligence community, but more importantly, we need to be much better at tapping the expertise that is outside of the intelligence community and other parts of the U.S. government. That means changing some rules, and David's reference to ORCON restrictions is one of these uh, concrete impediments. So you can't share things with people in uh, executive branch agencies who are very knowledgeable on the subject because a collector has stamped it that they can't can't be shared. Um, not reaching out to academic uh, think tank and other uh, uh, private sector uh, enterprises. We, we must have networks of analysts. They must be connected and interact with one another all the time so that when there is firebell that involves that account, you don't start a journey of discovery to see who else might know something. You already have a team that you're ready to activate and they understand, you understand what can be done for one another. The confidence in the community that my number one priority when I became the deputy DNI for analysis was to restore confidence in the work that the analysts in the community do. We had a morale problem. We had 20,000 analysts that had been tarred with the brush of the Iraq WMD estimate. Uh, like Jim Clapper, my fingerprints are on it. I was one of the people at that NFIB. Mike Hayden, Jim Clapper, myself, and Charlie Allen uh, uh, were carryover people who had uh, shared responsibility for the defects of that estimate and that added to determination to fix it. But confidence of executive branch officials in the support they were getting from the community, confidence of members of Congress, the, a part of the government that they shouldn't have to worry about very much, suddenly emerged as one requiring a lot of concern 
So establishing through a variety of mechanisms, the most important of which was demonstrated improvement in the quality of what we did. We again have a crisis of confidence of sorts, but it's more with the American public. Um, and it has the danger of eroding morale in the community um, because of inadequate explanations to the public of what it is that we do. Um, and that really does need to be addressed or somebody's likely to start another wave of fixing the intelligence community that will be misplaced. The final observation on this for the, the decade ahead is given the uncertainties all of us have pointed to, um, the need to keep on keeping on. I think the fundamental directions of the reforms that grew out of IRPA, some of them they're in the legislation, most of them in my judgment um, were recognized and realized by senior people across the IC. We didn't need to be told what to do. Uh, we saw what the problems were and were delighted by the opportunity created by the IRPA to actually make some of the changes. Uh, as one of my <coughs> counterparts put it in a meeting before passage of the legislation, when the senior analytic leaders were meeting to decide what we could do. Uh, he put it, it looks like they're gonna pass legislation that'll put the inmates in charge of the asylum. This is probably gonna be the last thing we do in our career, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna use that? And I think the direction, though there are unfulfilled pieces, it's the right one. Expertise, outreach, collaboration, integration, information sharing, functioning as parts of a single team. The slogans are easy to reduce down to understandable concepts. I think we've got in the community the leadership. We certainly must strive in the decade ahead to ensure that we have the leadership to make all of these things happen, to for once and for all, solve some of the kinds of niddling problems that are critically, uh, critical hindrances of the kind that David noted. Let me stop with that. Tom, Chuck, may I grab 90 Please. seconds more for the correct Tom? No, 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 you triggered me for one thing I wanted to cover. Um, Goldwater Nichols ultimately worked because of the requirement to get promoted to 07, the individual had to have served in the joint arena. Took a long time, but it fundamentally changed the quality yeah. of the joint chiefs, staff, the quality of the unified specified commands totally. in the process. Uh, granting waivers was rare. When it, they were granted, the next assignment had to be in the joint arena, first assignment as an 07. And there were a handful of those, nuclear submariners, carrier aviators. Uh, I was elated to hear uh, yesterday uh, about the numbers of people now moving across to the different agencies. I think that may be one of the great successes of the 2004 legislation in doing it. My cautionary note, don't grant waivers uh, too casually in that process. Make it be truly a joint billet, not just one designated double-hatted in the process. 
and if the necessity of career field, you can't do it beforehand, require when they are promoted that that next assignment is out in one of the joint jobs. Yeah, one of the things I would add to that, I'm, I'm a big fan of Goldwater Nichols and what it did for the military. The, um, the interesting part of that was uh, quite frankly, it took 15 to 20 years Indeed. Yeah, for it to, uh, yeah. to take effect. And that's where we get to this term generational. And so do we have to wait a generation or is there something we can do uh, in the intelligence community to, to accelerate that, that sort of a process? And the other thing that made, from my standpoint, that made Goldwater Nichols work uh, was Ike Skelton. Uh, in terms of he absolutely, with an iron fist, said these are going to be the requirements that you have to meet and there are going to be no waivers and so forth. And I think hopefully we can have a similar uh, overseer that- uh, For the future that, chairman. That, uh, that uh, imposes that sort of rigor on, on the process. John, you had a- Yeah, well, Admiral Inman, as usual, sparked something I want to mention. And uh, let me just throw this out as a little time bomb here. Uh, and then I've got to take a flight and go somewhere. Uh -huh. But uh, in the next panel, you should really get into this. The whole issue of transparency, we need to be very thoughtful about this. We need to really give this some attention. Now, why do I say that? I'm afraid this has become one of those very positive words we all use without really thinking about what it means. It's a little bit like, now, words mean something. For example, if you're bargaining for something in the souk in Istanbul, you never say, can I get that cheaper? You say, is there any flexibility in that price? But that's a great tip, by the way. <laughs> Why? Why, because flexibility is a, is a positive word. People don't like to not be flexible. Cheap is a bad word. So transparency is one of those words we can't really disagree with. It sounds like something we ought to do. Well, here's what I'd ask you to think about. Where is the level of transparency? I know what it means. I teach intelligence, so I'm transparent about this field. My feeling is, all right, let's talk, as I think Nick indicated, let's talk about uh, our goals, uh, acknowledge that we have SIGINT, imagery from space, something called MESINT, OSINT. These are our objectives. Fine. But with most American values, let's say freedom of the press, let's say human rights, when we articulate our values, we expect and encourage and take steps to ensure that the rest of the world uh, moves in that direction too. We want them to. You think any other intelligence services are going to move in the direction of transparency? No. They think we're nuts. <laughs> they really do. Now, next point. We are already more transparent than any intelligence service in the world. No other intelligence service has their senior leader, and I used to do this, as Jim does now, go up to the Congress and present an annual threat assessment. These are serious documents. These are not PR documents. I can tell you, people work on these assiduously for a long period of time, and if you read them, the submitted statement, look it up online, dni.gov, it's very good. 
And it will tell you what our priorities are, and it will tell you where we think the danger is coming from. It will tell you a lot. American public doesn't read that. Everyone else does. Um, so, and I'm not against it. That's fine. That kind of transparency is fine. I'm not arguing. I'm just saying we have a lot. Our Congress already gets more material than any other legislature in the world, bar none. Even our closest allies uh, don't come close to what we call oversight. We actually have to, and Tom, I think, tell me if I'm right, uh, Tom oversaw estimates uh, for a long period of time. If we include in a national intelligence estimate information we've gotten from, let's say, our uh, British colleagues or Australian colleagues, we can't include that in what we send to our Congress because their legislatures don't get that. So our system over oversight, deficient as it may be, is already more robust than any in the world. Now, one could say, well, we're an exceptional nation and we should be doing that. Yes, that's true. But uh, I guess I want to just, Admiral Inman's caution on this that made me think about it. Um, how far do we really want to go with transparency, particularly, now, public understanding. Here's the other, uh, in my, uh, you can tell this is a button got pushed, but here's another uh, thought on it. To some degree, this goes to what Tom said about trying to fix our national security apparatus by fixing intelligence. To some degree, uh, American uh, anxiety uh, about intelligence is a symptom of a larger problem. If you look at the Pew Research surveys of American trust in government, not intelligence, in government, and the congressman referred yesterday uh, uh, so candidly to Congress's low rating, the American trust in government, acknowledging that public opinion surveys can be manipulated by how the questions are asked and all of that, but nonetheless, pretty clear finding, the distrust of government has never been higher. It's like in the 70 to 80 percent uh, range. And intelligence, I think, gets swept up in that. Americans generally are skeptical. We're at a time when um, I, I heard a, a Chinese businessman interviewed by Ted Koppel. And he asked this man, he sold motorcycles in Beijing. And he was doing very well. And Koppel on television asked him, do you trust your government? Uh, do you like your, no, he said, do you like your government? He said, do you like your government? He said, um, uh, I don't like it, but I trust it. That's kind of the reverse of what we have here. You know, we like our government, but we don't trust it. I don't, and there's a reason for that. I could, you know, give you my student lecture about going back to 1963 and all of the things that have happened since then in my old lifetime that have gotten us to this point. But I, I just leave you with that to think about. I'm not, don't misunderstand, I'm not against it. I teach it. We ha we're speaking in a conference about it. But where are the limits here? I know what I mean by it. Do the people who are calling for more know what they mean? 
Chuck, okay. I, I want to pick up on one point from Admiral Lindman and the importance of the joint duty. Uh, I, I can't oh. overemphasize this. But we got to go to the audience after this, David. Yes, okay. <laughs> but very quickly, the joint duty is the single biggest game-changing aspect if you want to change culture. And for DIA, I have not granted a single waiver in four years because none met the threshold for the exception of paying it forward. Secondly, we're at 7% of DIA either on JDA and a, a little under 5% JDA inside coming to DIA. And it is actually a test of leadership. The, the question you asked, Chuck, on can we accelerate beyond what Goldwater Nichols did? Yes, we can with the leadership in place that is absolutely committed to doing this. And yes, it does inflict short-term pain to the branch chief, the group chief, the division chief, who is the giver, who doesn't in essence feel that they're a recipient of the exchange and want a drug deal, so to speak, in terms of a one-for-one -one swap. That's not what we're talking about. And lastly, it is about an immersive experience outside of their chain of command that is of the greatest value. Okay. Thanks. The, uh, this whole run through has uh, probably provoked about uh, 30 questions that I wrote down here, but the, uh, and, I, and I hope it's done the same for you. So I'm gonna open it up to audience questions now. Who's, Joe? <coughs> That's great. I mean, uh, great presentation. Uh, let me just ask, I would think for the American public, when they were talking about the creation, the uh, intelligence reform, and the, and the new structure of an ODNI, uh, they're looking at the issues that the uh, excellent panels yesterday and the evening before spoke about the threat from state actors, non-state actors, those non-state actors, terrorists, but uh, uh, cr criminal organizations. And they're saying now with the creation of this new structure, are we better positioned to address those threats, and is the nation that much secure, safer? Someone may be coming. Uh, uh, just in the interest, I'll be very brief, because I know we need to get a lot of questions in. I, I think we're better positioned to address them. I really do. Um, and I think it's the uh, capacity of the DNI to put together teams, because there are no issues today that are in boxes. They all cross discipline lines, uh, organizational lines, and I think power and influence in the intelligence community will flow to those who can work across those lines, and the DNI has the power to, to do that. Tony Cothran. I'd like to ask Nick and David in the context of Admiral Inman's comment about how he managed acquisition you know, in his organization back then. How well are our middle managers managing the operations of intelligence, the collection, the processing, and analysis? And Nick, I'm pleased to hear you've got a data science office. But how are we taking this, this workforce, this young workforce that's come in since 9-11 and teaching them management practice of these organizations? What would you do better with that today? Well, first of all, just a, a bit of a disclaimer in terms of the overall intelligence community, NCTC does this on the most micro of scales. We are looking at developing, for example, 
relatively small software solutions to managing our own data holding problems rather than the kind of enterprise-wide acquisition and, and data manage, management issues that, the, that Director Clapper referred to. But, it, but I'll still go back to what I said before. We felt ourselves to be at a deficit in terms of exactly what you described. People who come at this as their career, as their career expertise. Um, what we've had in the past has been an effort to kind of put IT professionals in the room with mission professionals and say, talk to each other and figure out, you know what you need to do, you know what we're capable of doing, figure it out. That has, not, that has led to less than completely satisfactory solutions and it, when those two tribes don't necessarily speak a common language. And so I think our, our effort, again, on a very micro scale is to try to create a bridge between those two tribes, people who under, analysts who understand what, what it means to do analysis, sitting down with engineers uh, who understand what it means to, to deal with large data holdings. And we're still not there yet in terms of having them talk to each other successfully. Again, on a very micro scale, if we can create an in-house expertise of people who understand that whole, that whole area of inquiry as a science, we'll be better positioned. My objective is to close the gap between the mission user and the access to innovation at the first line manager level. And by creating the gateway for innovation in which the private sector is able to have that dialogue with the first, uh, first line manager, it's, it's in its early stages of success. I think you, you know what we're trying to do at DI in that regard. The other thing is, don't laugh, but I've set up a geek squad. <laughs> and they literally go around fixing or attempting to fix problems. But I do have a severe shortage of data scientists. Mm -hmm. It is the single biggest requirement that I have by way of being able to tap into that. And a very useful thing for the DNI to do would actually to be set up a service of common concern of data scientists that would go across the agency boundaries solving or, or attempting to solve or certainly address aspects of the big data problem in relationship to what Nick faces, to virtually every, every IC element it's facing, which is bulk data, big data, and how do I create a model of a push the data rather than the pull the data in terms of the, uh, the, the, the accessibility of the connected data showing up at that proverbial desktop. That's a real challenge. So, so let me turn that question slightly. The, um, uh, the, the idea of data scientists, I've heard some, some people say, I mean, if any uh, students or, or parents uh, in the audience, <coughs> the, uh, if you want a surefire uh, job after graduation for your son or daughter, it's data science, and it's going to be around for a long time. That said, uh, how are we doing, and I'm kind of looking at three others on the panel here, uh, John, and Admiral, and uh, Tom, uh, who are in academia now. How are we doing preparing uh, our young folks for careers in the intelligence community? I would just say I don't have data scientists for the most part, although occasionally I get one who's studying international affairs. But what I, uh, everyone will say this, it's absolutely true, I believe. It's been said many times, so I won't go over it. But the, the quality of people who are trying to come into intelligence now, with some difficulty because of the clearance process, is extraordinary. 
I mean, this generation is so much more mobile than we were. It was a big deal when I was a kid to go overseas. Someone walks into my office, 23 years old, I say, where have you been? He says, well, or she, well, I've studied Arabic in Oman, Cairo, uh, Damascus, and uh, Morocco. Okay. And uh, they are, you know, Will would probably say the same thing. These are young people who are becoming fluent in Arabic, Farsi, Mandarin, Russian, to a much greater degree than uh, my generation did, and uh, highly motivated. I, I think on that score, we're good. Intelligence community is good. No worries. Substantial number of uh, students in here have gone to the intelligence community and overwhelmingly positive response about it. But the one anecdotal problem that comes to mind, incredibly innovative uh, scientist, data manager, who was starting his own company, left it to go in uh, to a large agency, and after six months left because those who were there were unwilling to consider his ideas for new ways or new approaches to go about doing business. I just uh, uh, absolutely agree with what's been said. The caliber of the young people at Stanford and the commitment to public service uh, that is, is really gratifyingly remarkably high that some of the, the best students we've got want to serve in, in public service in some fashion, some portion of that to the intelligence community. Second point is they're all data savvy. Yeah. That you know, oh, our generation, yeah. this is an unnatural act and we've got to learn all this stuff. It's intuitive, they use it, it's in their uh, disciplinary training and they're ready to go in that, in that regard when they show up. Uh, living in Silicon Valley, uh, a fair chunk of these migrate to Google and LinkedIn and Facebook and uh, Apple and all of the companies that uh, are within five miles of, of Stanford. So there's a need to, to compete uh, for this talent. And finally, and maybe most important of all, it's a general challenge for the intelligence community to revise the work rules, the procedures, the way of doing things, most of which still date from the early Cold War period, that interfere with the normal inclinations and ways that our students have been trained for collaboration, cooperating with people in the virtual world, sharing information at a distance. To the extent we make it hard for them to do in their professional life what they know worked for them in universities, what they know their colleagues working in the private sector are doing. So it's a, I cannot do my job in the intelligence community unless you change some of these stupid rules kind of phenomenon that will hurt us with retention. Chuck, I want to just add to a practitioner side in an agency where um, the quality that we're getting, and let's call them the millennials coming in, uh, much like the NCTC example of the number of applicants to, to hire. For summer interns, 111 positions, I had 2,400 applicants. Um, I could choose uh, whether I wanted with one foreign language or a second one uh, at virtually for every one of them. 
And then that is my recruiting pool, not limited to in terms of the hiring side of it. And I put them on to not to exceed, which is a bureaucratic um, uh, positioning so that they can be extended beyond their internship for, for hiring into, into DIA. I have no expectation though uh, as a business model that I will have them there 30 years. So what I've done there is I have allowed anyone who, when they wish to leave, to have their security clearance extended for up to seven years. It cost me about $1,000 to keep that security clearance active versus about $14,000 to do a new one. So it's a business decision, it's a very practical one. So I have a number, and there's, there is a relationship then with that one who's departed in reporting their foreign travel and aspects to it, and it's a simple update. When I am betting, the vast majority will return. <laughs> so it is actually a business decision in, in, in doing this. And to Tom's point, it is a very practical way of adapting for keeping and attracting and returning that talent into the intelligence community. And I have never stopped hiring, by the way, even doing sequestration. Okay, I'm gonna give Nick the last word. I just wanna draw a distinction between our ability to, to recruit and, and hire the best and brightest in some of the fields we've talked about, because I wouldn't disagree with John or Tom at all. Analysts, people with interest in national security, people with an interest in in our business, I think that's not that's not the challenge. They, they know that the intelligence community or the government is the place to do what they want to do, and they will line up no matter how dysfunctional we sometimes are at bringing them in. What is a harder challenge is find, finding, attracting, and hiring the people who have these functional skills to support uh, intelligence work, the data scientists. We use that as the kind of classic example. I know, I guess, yesterday you must have run through the numbers of what we went through when we did some recent hiring at NCTC, but we did not have thousands of people applying to be our data scientists. We had a relatively modest number, maybe even only a few. And the reason <coughs> is that those individuals, A, they have many, many, a wider array of options about where they can apply their skills across the, the entirety of the public and private uh, sectors. But also, it, it may not be immediately apparent to them as they go through their uh, educations how their skills can be applied to national security work. And I don't know that we've done, my guess is NSA, I don't know enough about NSA to know how they do their recruiting. They've been dealing with this challenge for years in terms of trying to bring people that are not only data savvy, but well beyond data savvy into NSA. But I think the rest of the intelligence community and certainly our little slice at NCTC, we could do better at that. How is a data scientist supposed to just know by reading an application or an item on USA Jobs that they could make a critical contribution to national security? Co-op program helps while they're still in school, getting them excited about what they would be able to work on when they're there. So I've, I've failed in my principal responsibility to end on time. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're going to have a 15-minute break. I think our panelists who've done a great job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.